Go ahead and turn in your Bible to the first Psalm this morning, the book of Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 1 this morning. I do have to warn you, this is not going to be a lighthearted message. This is a message that some will love and some uh, out there, not necessarily here in the auditorium, but some uh, out there are not going to like this message. If people that are disagreeing with what I'm going to say are watching this message this morning, they're going to get mad at me. There may be a time in a few years after you've gone out of here, finished your degree and gone out and done some things in your ministry that you're going to look back at this message and you might hate it too someday. I certainly hope that's not the case. As you get to Psalm 1, you'll notice it starts with the word blessed or blessed is the man. And that, that word there, uh, we use the word blessed or bless uh, almost as an, in a trite way. During the Middle Ages, when you would sneeze, they believed that your soul was actually leaving your body. And so they would immediately say, God bless you so that Satan wasn't able to grab your soul when you sneezed it out. I'm glad you can't sneeze it out and that we've learned a few things since then. Now we use it as this trite little thing that we say to excuse gossip, do we not? And you can say anything you want to about someone as long as you follow it up with the words, bless their heart. Oh my, she has gained an awful lot of weight, bless her heart. Oh my, his, his hair certainly is thinning, bless his heart. Now, I did my best not to look at anybody in particular because I can look at the mirror and see examples of hair thinning, all right? But that's not what it means when you get to this verse. I think sometimes because of modern colloquialisms and the, even the modern use of vocabulary, when we read our Bibles, we fail to actually understand what the word is actually saying. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that you have to be a Greek scholar, a Hebrew scholar to understand the word of God, but every now and then it does help to know what those words meant when they were translated uh, originally. And, and the word blessed or blessed does not just mean bless his heart. It does not just mean bless you so that your soul isn't stolen by Satan. What it means is to be happy. And you've heard preachers say that, but it doesn't just mean happy. Happy is not the, uh, the, not the, the proper word for, def, uh, for, for translating this. The actual, it, the actual word that doesn't exist in our modern day English language. It's actually a phrase. When it says blessed, it actually has the connotation of, oh, so happy. Not just a little bit happy, not just a lot happy, but unbelievably happy. Happy, blessed is the man. Oh, so happy is the man. It goes on to say that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree. Planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth, he shall prosper. We're going to read the last three verses, although we're not going to be there today. Our time will be taken up uh, in, the, in the first three verses. And as I believe it was Henry VIII said to his fourth wife, don't worry, I'm not going to keep you long. You'll be out on time, I believe, today. So I think you'll be all right with that. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You'll notice how the verse starts. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I want you to notice what it's telling us here, and then we'll have a word of prayer, is this. Happiness, to be oh so happy, requires decisions. 
It's not just an accidental thing. You don't stumble into the blessings of Almighty God. You don't stumble accidentally, fall backwards into it, into being, oh, so happy. It requires some decisions. We're going to look at two kinds of decisions this morning, and then we'll be done. Let's have a word of prayer as I preach a message entitled, Happiness Requires Decisions. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for our opportunity to preach in chapel this morning. Lord, we thank you for these young people. Thank you for their pastors that sent them here. Many of them older, much older men in the ministry who've studied and fought and labored for you for years. Many of these young men and young ladies have been influenced by godly men across the scope of their lives who have poured themselves into them and helped them and trained them and then prayed with their family as they packed up to head to Bible college. Pastors who wept for them on the day that they read the decision slip in a church service that said, young so-and-so has surrendered to preach. Or young Miss so-and-so has given her life for full-time Christian service. Many of them have home churches that are praying for them. Many of them have people that have influenced their lives, teachers that pray for them and teach them every single day. And yet, Father, we know just from history, just from observation, that a few of these young people today, a few of these young servants that are surrendered to you, are going to go through the whole process of coming here to school, learning everything that's offered to them, trained and raised up, with the prayers of a home church, the prayers of a faculty, the labor of a college, and yet in just a few years, in their own ministries, they're going to begin to walk away from it all. We've seen it happen countless times. Father, I pray that the message this morning will serve first as a warning of what could happen, but second as an encouragement of what can happen. Father, have your will and your way in our hearts this morning. Help us, Lord. To not be harsh as we preach this morning, but Father, maybe to be hard, but not harsh. Father, have your will and way. Do something in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice that the verse begins with this, Blessed is the man that walketh not. Notice how it starts with a not. See, the first decision I want to talk about in your life and still in my life. By the way, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're still making these decisions. I've seen men go off the deep end in their 50s and 60s that you would have thought would have been as solid as they possibly could be. Just a few months ago, we went to a church where I preached at for many, many years. I've been going there for a long, long time. When the first pastor had to resign, I recommended someone to take the church. The church voted him in, a sharp young man, a little bit younger than the previous pastor, but certainly not wet behind the ears. For a number of years, things went well at the church. This time we went there. We we're going to preach on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so we drove from the meeting that ended the day before and drove up to this church, parked our vehicle. Uh, we stopped by the church, unloaded our CD table, drove to the hotel where we were staying, unpacked a little bit, changed clothes, and came to church. A church that we've been in hundreds of times. We walked in the auditorium to find out that even the pastor was dressed casual for the first night of the revival. Now, I'm not one of those that believes that you can't be spiritual and dress casual. 
I do believe that the Bible spends a lot of time telling the priests what they're supposed to wear when they go to the tabernacle and to the temple. I do believe that God thinks that's an important thing. And y'all do your best when you come to church. It's just that simple. If the best that you have is the very nicest set of coveralls that you own, then that's what you ought to wear to church every time the doors are open. Even the pastor was dressed casual. There were no seats on the platform anymore for the choir. As a matter of fact, the pastor had done away with the choir. See, the original pastor, the previous pastor, had instituted in the Constitution rules that said that there were dress standards for the choir and the pastor wanted to do with the, away with the dress standards but couldn't do so without changing the Constitution. So he did away with the choir entirely. He had his singing team that would come up holding their individual microphones. There's no pulpit any longer on the platform. There's only a little table sitting right there where you're supposed to stand and lecture. The music had nothing to do with hymns. wasn't a hymnal in sight. No one opened up a book. As a matter of fact, it was just a bunch of trite choruses. After the service, and by the way, just for those of you who are wondering, I preached exactly like I would preach right here. You don't change the principles of the Word of God because of the congregation. After I preached, the pastor and I were talking. Again, I've known him since his his littlest child was a baby. His oldest child was a baby. And he said, I was a little disappointed in the attendance tonight on a Friday night. Friday night oftentimes is the uh, second most difficult night. Monday night's the most difficult night to fill up in a typical revival. But Friday nights have become pretty difficult for a church to get their largest attendance on that Friday night. A little disappointed, he said, in the attendance tonight. And I looked at him and I said, well, what, what is the church running now on Wednesday nights? And he said, oh, we don't have Wednesday night services anymore. I said, well, what do you run on Sunday night? He said, oh, no. We did away with our Sunday night services. We used that for Awana training. I said, well, what do you do when you're not having Awana? Because it only runs a few months. What do you run on those nights during, uh, during, uh, during, uh, during, uh, during on Sunday night? He said, oh, no, we use those to get ready for the Awana program that's going to start. Canceled their Sunday school. They have one service a week, every single week. Because the first church in Jerusalem wasn't tied to a building. They met in houses. Of course, the obvious answer to that young person when you hear that question, when you hear that statement made, was that the first church was an illegal church. They were under persecution. Their pastor was martyred for the cause of Christ. They didn't put up signs and billboards out front announcing this is where the New Testament church meets. Of course, they didn't have buildings. Of course, they met in homes. We've seen it happen over the course of our ministry. I was as shocked as I could possibly be I would have never thought that this pastor would go that direction. At the end of our time there on Sunday night, when we were ready to leave, he said, do you want to talk about a future meeting? I said, no, pastor, it's obvious that we're going in different directions. I wouldn't help your ministry if I came here and preached the way I preach. He then proceeded to give me a list of men that I know that have no problems at all coming to his church, no matter how far it's moved to the left. We've seen it happen over and over. And I will tell you this, without any hesitation, without any reservation, it could happen to every single person in this room if we don't make some decisions. 
This passage starts with the decision of discretion. It starts with what we're not supposed to do. The Bible has a lot of things to say about what we're supposed to do, of course. But it also has a lot of things to say about what we're not supposed to do, doesn't it? There are a lot of nots in the Word of God. Psalm 3 and verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against uh, against me round about. Psalms 56 and verse 4, In God I will praise His Word. Uh, I will praise His word. In God I put my trust. I will not fear the flesh, what the flesh can do unto me. Psalm 119 and verse 16. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Or what Simon Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. Therefore I will not be negligent, but you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and though you be established in the present truth. Or Psalm 101 and verse 3. Imagine how David's life would have been different had he kept this commitment, this decision of discretion. He said in verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. David's whole life is altered. The whole remembrance of David is changed if he had kept that decision of discretion. The entire book of Daniel is built on a phrase about not. When the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he will not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. Those three Hebrew children standing up in front of Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 18, Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which I have thou set up. I'm here to tell you, young people, you need to make some decisions of discretion. You may need to make some decisions about what you're not going to do. You need to make them now and don't waver on them. Whatever the world does, whatever the common thought process is, whatever every friend that you ever had has done makes no difference at all. Make some decisions of discretion right now. It's amazing that young people that have sat in these seats, and please, please forgive me for saying young people so often. I realize that sometimes that can come across as demeaning, but in the actual reality, I am older than the most, the majority of you, and to me, you are young people. It doesn't mean that you're unimportant. It doesn't mean you should be ignored. It doesn't mean that you don't have good ideas and good thoughts, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to do great things for Almighty God and maybe are doing great things for Almighty God, even even as you're here in school. And let's just face the simple fact, a great thing to do for Almighty God is to prepare for what God has you in the future so you are in fact doing something great for the Lord while you're here doing your best. Please don't think that is a demeaning term when I use it, okay? But listen, young people, I've watched people come into this school. I've watched them walk across the platform. I've watched them graduate. I've watched them go out of this school and within just a few years... All of a sudden, everything that they believed has changed. Now they're posting on Facebook about how wicked those dyed-in-the-wool fundamentalists are. They give us little colloquial abbreviations. We're the IFB movement. You've seen that, I'm sure. Some even call us the IFB X movement. That just means you're really fundamental. IFB, of course, stands for Independent Fundamental Baptist. We're regarded almost at the same level of Al-Qaeda by some of them. The FBI has more credibility than the IFB in most people's minds nowadays. 
And it's not the world that is criticizing us. The world does not understand us, of course. They don't understand going to church every single night for an entire week. They don't understand going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. They don't get that. The world's never going to get that until they trust Christ as their personal Savior. Then it becomes apparent to them. It's not the world that's criticizing us. It's former people that sat in seats just like these and in other Bible colleges around the country. And now they criticize us all the time. You will hear them. You would think that since they don't have many of them, and I'm not painting everybody with the same brush, but since many of them have decided that things that they once believed were wrong to do are now okay, that now they don't have the strictures of all the rules and regulations of the IFB movement, these old, old fundamental Baptists telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do and what they could wear and what they couldn't wear and where they could go and they, now they, where they can't go, and now they don't have those rules surrounding them anymore. You would think they would be overjoyed and happy and so thrilled. No more the burden of living a life to please others as they describe it. No more the requirements of church all the time. No more some preacher standing up and telling them what's wrong with them and preaching messages about repentance and chastisement and scourging. You would think they would be overjoyed. You would think they would just be laughing all the time. You would think they would have achieved, oh, so happy. But what do they do? They spend their time, and you've seen it, they spend their time on social media criticizing anybody that has any standard that they do not have. Many years ago, I was working at a carpet store. I was the manager of it. And a, a friend of mine came in. He's an old friend of mine. He's a little different. There's no question about it. I don't mind saying his name. He would, he would probably, he might even remember this story. His name is Greg Moles. Now, there are some people that if they say the name Greg Moles, they actually roll their eyes when they say Greg Moles. He's just one of those stick-in-the-mud kind of guys. And he came in and he was talking to us and I asked him if he had watched something on television the night before and he said this. He said, oh no, I don't have a television. Just like that. After he walked out, I said, listen carefully to me, to the lost man that worked with me. Isn't that crazy? Not having a television. He just thinks he's better than everybody. That's what me, a backslidden Christian, said to a lost man that worked with me. You know, the Lord smote my heart about that. I'm criticizing this man for having more standards and more convictions than I have. When did we get there, Christian? It surrounds us. It has almost completely enveloped us. They're all around shooting arrows at places like Ambassador Baptist College because they've decided no longer to make the decision of discretion. They're not happy. They're more critical than, they've ever, than we ever were, even as much as they criticize us for being critical. They've decided that the drunkard is just a good man, a well-meaning man that has become addicted to alcohol. But they've also decided that the greatest enemy in the world, the true evil in the world, is the independent fundamental Baptist. They'll roll their eyes when they even say the word fundamental. They've decided it's their goal in life, their job in life, to protect those lost people from the evils 
of Bible preaching fundamentals, fundamentalists. Because the worst thing that could happen to a lost person, we understand this, is that they trust Christ as their personal Savior after hearing a message on hell from a fiery evangelist or a God-fearing pastor and then eventually get some kind of standards and convictions that have more than they do. That's the worst thing that could happen to a lost person. They don't attack the Muslims. They attack Bible-believing fundamentalists. They tolerate and encourage the LGBT, but they hate the IFB. They admit, listen to this, they do not have an inspired, preserved Bible. And they're okay with that. They just don't want us to have one. They want to tell you how our Bible can't be the Word of God. They don't spend any time defending their Bible because they know in six months a new one's going to come out and they're going to switch to that. They just don't want us to have one. You can post anything you want to on, on Facebook as long as you don't say anything about dressing like a Christian. You can put anything on your body as long as you don't preach a message about modesty while you're doing it. You can have, uh, they, they will bristle if you call them by a title. If we use terms like neo-evangelical or something like that. They will bristle when we get put a, gave them a title and yet they'll call us legalists and Pharisees. I'm here to tell you something. That ought to offend every single one of you when you hear that. Because the legalists, if you're a legalist, then you're not saved. You're believing your works are going to take you to heaven, so you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And the Pharisees were filled on the inside with dead men's bones and whited sepulchers on the outside. Every time they tell you you're a legalist, that you're a Pharisee, they just accused you of not even knowing Christ as your personal Savior. It ought to make you bristle just a little bit. Oh, then they'll say, well, you're not legalist, you're legalistic. No, we're not legalistic. I don't believe that your dress has anything to do with where you're going to spend eternity. I'm not pharisaical. I don't believe you have to keep every one of the 600 plus mosaic laws for you to someday maybe possibly make your way to heaven. I don't believe either one of those things. I'm neither one. They'll bristle when we call them a title and then they'll call us titles that are completely unbiblical. They'll say that any place you want to hang out is fine just as long as it's not a church service on Sunday night or Wednesday night. They'll say any music is fine just as long as it isn't some old-fashioned hymns. <laughs> you ever notice that the newfangled music, and I'm not just a person that's going to, again, dismiss everything out there, but understand newfangled music says that when God looked down through the corridors of time, He saw me, and I'm so important to Him that he came to die on an old rugged cross for me. Whereas hymns say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. Understand, it's a completely different mentality of the music today. But any music is okay. Any kind of instrumentality is okay. Drums are absolutely fine. All of that is okay. It can sound like a honky-tonk just as long as it doesn't sound like a hymn. That's the only thing they have a problem with. How does that happen? How do you go from sitting here with tears streaming down your cheek as we sing holy, holy, holy to someday sitting there with your praise team behind you, singing a song that has no doctrine in it at all. 
the repetition of a few key phrases that have become popular, that have become the flavor of the month phrases. How do you go from that? Because you didn't make your decision of discretion. The Bible tells you what you did. And it's happened in every person, I think without fail, that once again sat in these seats and went out and believed everything they were taught here is wrong now. Let me ask you a question. What does that say about that person? Who in the sincerity of their youth surrendered to come to Bible college, surrendered to come to this particular Bible college, studied under godly professors that they looked up to and respected, and now they've become so enlightened that everything they learned was wrong. When they first got saved, you marked their growth in the Lord by how much they became, how little more they become less like the world. And now that they've become really mature, their sign of maturity and spirituality is that they've become more like the world. They've now become more spiritual. They're so spiritual now that they can wear their skinny jeans and their vest and their their button-down shirt to preach in the pulpit. But it used to be a sign for those same people of spirituality to do their best when they come to the house of the Lord. I don't understand what it says about them. I don't know how Christian growth can be described as one way until you become 25 years of age. And then that same word, that same phrase, Christian growth, is now described by the exact opposite trajectory. I don't understand how that works. Maybe someday someone will explain it to me. I've read what they say. And the holes in their arguments are so vast that it's hard to even imagine that people fall for some of that. By the way, I know that independent Baptists are not perfect. I know we've made some mistakes. I've heard men preach things that just absolutely are not in the Word of God. I've heard men, heard men make announcements that it made it sound like this pastor or this evangelist was the sole judge of everything that was spiritual. Those things are not true. They never were true. And they've never actually been what Bible-believing fundamental Baptists ever believed. But just because some men said it loudly and prominently, now we've all been labeled with the same titles. Notice how the decisions take place. Notice how the passage begins. Blessed is the man, notice it starts first uh, with the, the stroll of inquisition. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The stroll of inquisition. You've gone to Bible college. You've had the professors with you all the time. You've been able to ask them questions. And that's where you've returned every time you've had a question. By the way, I am 59 years of age. And I still ask my, some of my professors that taught me here Bible questions this many years later. And do you know what? They answer me every time I ask. Don't act like these men that have been teaching and laboring over you the whole time you've been here, no matter how many years you've been here. Don't act like they stop caring about you the day you graduate because that's just not true. The truth is these people that you used to ask, now they're not there every day. It's not convenient for you to ask them questions. So you get a thought in your mind and the first place you turn is to a friend. And when you ask your friend about this thought, he begins to tell you in glowing terms about a podcast. Now, I'm not against podcasts. I'm not against technology at all. But he tells you about a 
podcast. Oh, I like this guy. And he'll say something like this. Now, you watch me because it happens this way every single time. Oh, he's not where we are. But I think you'll like him. Oh, he doesn't believe like we believe, but he says some pretty good things. And then you say to yourself, I think I'll listen one time. He lectures as an intellectual. He begins to talk to you as if you don't know anything. He makes little snide remarks about what you believe and how it's not important, that the only important thing is that you listen to his podcast every day. And you start to listen, but you're just walking along. You understand, if I'm walking along with someone and they say something I don't like, do you know how easy it is to walk with someone and they say, boy, I'm a, I'm a Washington Redskins fan. I can go just like this and walk right away from them. That's what a stroll is. That's what walking in the counsel of the ungodly is. It's not a permanent thing. It's not a stationary thing. I'm not totally involved in this. It's not that important to me. It's just something I'm just casually listening to. Listen, you need to be careful about what you casually listen to. Oh, Brother Harper, if I only read books written by independent fundamental Baptists, I wouldn't have any books at all in my library. You are exactly right. You would have very few, and most of them, I would say about 80% of them, aren't even that good of a read, all right? There are some exceptions, obviously. I know what you're saying when you say that. But you need to open up that book, and you need to open it knowing what you believe before you open it. Too many young people are getting their theology from people that they disagree with their theology until they're absorbed by it. And then they all of a sudden agree with it. And we give this thought, this thought process. Well, you know, I'm just walking. I can leave whenever I want. It's just a stroll. I'm, I'm just inquisitive about what they have to say. I want to know what they're saying that's got everybody so excited. I want to know what their opinion is. <laughs> I don't care what their opinion is. I'm sorry, I don't. Brother Harper, you're narrow-minded. Thank you. Please do not think for a moment that you have insulted me or discouraged me by saying I'm narrow-minded. Notice, oh, well, I don't, I don't agree with everything they're saying. I just want to get their opinion. I just want to see this from all sides. Let me point something out to you that never gets mentioned. The devil has a side. I don't want to see things from all sides. I don't want his opinion. Oh, I want to see it from all sides. Oh, I, 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 I want to see if there's any other way that this can be interpreted. It's just a stroll. I can overlook their Calvinism. It's just a walk. I can overlook their Bible version. Oh, it's just a little hike. I can overlook their inter interdenominationalism or non-denominationalism. Oh, they don't baptize like I baptize. They don't preach like I preach. They don't have the same Bible that I have. I don't, they don't believe in salvation like I do, but I'm just walking. I can leave any time I want. It happens every time. It starts with the stroll of inquisition. You start walking in the counsel of the ungodly. After you've walked for a while, you start standing. It starts with the stroll of inquisition, but then it moves into the stand of influence. Now, watch this carefully. You don't preach a message without listening to what this guy has to say about it. 
Now you've listened to him as he's recommended other people. Now you're listening to five or six podcasts a day. You used to drive down the street with Alexander Scorby speaking to you over your CD table. Now it's some modern day theologian. Say, Brother Harper, you're saying everything they say is wrong? Oh, no, not at all. On the times that they agree with the word of God, they're right. Let me just be more, more bold. And I don't, I don't mean for this to sound arrogant, but it's going to come across that way. If they agree with me, they're right. I don't need them to challenge my thinking about the word of God. I know what I believe about the word of God. I don't need them to challenge my thinking about things that the Bible clearly teaches. I'm not the least bit interested in that. But after you've taken the stroll, now you're in the stand of influence. Now you're listening to them every day. Every day I have to listen to it. Every day I have to consult them. Every day I have to get on my little circle of friends and ask them how they interpret this passage of Scripture. And if you ever notice, your circle of friends now becomes people your own age. It never becomes people that you used to rely on. That old pastor that you used to have that prayed for you and sent you to Bible college? He's just an old independent Baptist now. See, Brother Harper, that would never happen to me. <laughs> I will not ask Dr. Beale, I will not put him on the spot, how many young people have believed that it would never happen to them that are out there right now that wouldn't darken the doors of an independent Baptist church. As a matter of fact, they don't go to church anywhere, some of them. It could happen to you if you don't make the decision of discretion. You go into that stand of influence. Now you start using phrases like this. Well, I'm a, I'm a two-pointer. Isn't that funny? By the way, if you know anything about Calvinists, you know you're a zero-pointer if you're really right with God. I'm sorry to put it that way. You're a zero-pointer. Oh, but Brother Harper, they believe in total depravity. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You read what they say about that. They don't believe in total depravity. They believe in total inability. I'm not any pointer. People will say, well, you independent Baptists, well, you're just man followers, and I'm a Calvinist. Let that sink in for just a second. Your entire belief system is built on one man who was a flawed theologian in the first place. Oh, I'm standing and absorbing. I'm stationary. I am constantly finding fault with the men that I used to turn to for counsel and encouragement and taught me. I, am, I appreciate what pastor used to say, but that's not the kind of pastor I want to be. How many young people... How many younger preachers have I heard say something like that? I stand. As I stand, they are changing my preaching. As I'm stationary, I'm questioning my Bible. As I'm not moving, I'm opening the doors of fellowship to anyone. See, my fellowship used to be based upon doctrine. Now my fellowship is based upon just the fact that I won't fellowship. We've changed the whole terminology. Oh, we can't use the old hymns because young people don't understand those old hymns. I'm sorry. Let me just ask you this. Isn't the Bible clear that the older generation is supposed to teach the younger generation? So you know what we've done now? We're letting the younger generation control everything. Now, once again, I told you I love all you guys. But you're not the ones that should be leading the way yet. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, certainly 30 years from now, it's all going to be on you. And if my generation did not do the job of teaching you and training you, then the next generation after you, that's when we get an even bigger problems. 
We've let the younger generation control. We change things in our churches because young people don't understand. They don't know the terminology. Teach the terminology. Teach what the Bible says. You let that terminology idea influence your, your thinking. You'll be one of those eventually that's saying, well, those these and the thous, they don't really help anything. You watch me. I'm not telling you what might happen. I'm telling you what I've watched happen dozens and dozens of times. Oh, I'm stopped. I'm starting to accept their Calvinism. Matter of fact, you've been standing so long, you started with the stroll of inquisition, inquisitive, uh, inquisitive stroll, now you're standing in the stand of influence, and now you're ex- going to end up in the seat of indoctrination, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now you're the one with the podcast. Now you're the one scouring the internet for every time someone that you used to respect says something that you think is wrong. You're the first person to criticize. And the problem isn't that we're above criticism. The problem is they spend more time criticizing independent Baptists than they spend criticizing the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now you're, the, now you're in the seat of indoctrination. You're the one doing the indoctrinating now. You're the one encouraging people to take it even farther. But then what's sad about that is when someone goes farther than they do, they're the first ones that lament that someone went farther than they went. You'd think they'd be happy, but they're not happy. They're consistently and totally critical. Why? Because they never made the decision of discretion. They've taken that stroll of inquisition. They're in the, they've, they've stood in the place of influence. Now they're sitting in the seat of indoctrination. Now I'm the one that corrects you for being judgmental by judging you. Did you catch that? By the way, there's a whole lot of sarcasm in that statement. They're going to correct us for being judgmental by judging us. They're going to correct us for incorrectly interpreting the Word of God by incorrectly interpreting the Word of God while they judge us for being judgmental. I'm the one that posts how bad you are because your standards make people uncomfortable. Do you realize that if a biblical standard makes someone uncomfortable, there actually is a word for that? It's called conviction. Biblical standards ought to make people uncomfortable. A backslidden Christian ought to feel uncomfortable. By the way, a lost person ought to feel uncomfortable in a New Testament church service. Please understand that. Now, you watch me carefully because I want you to get this. A lost person better feel uncomfortable in a church service, but he better never, in the history of a Bible-leaving church, he better never feel unwelcomed. He needs to be treated like a honored guest when he walks in the door. But if he can sit there and listen to you preach a Bible message about how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, if he can hear a message on the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If he can hear that message and not feel uncomfortable, then you're not preaching it. It ought to make lost people feel uncomfortable. Backslidden Christians ought to feel uncomfortable. By the way, you and I ought to feel uncomfortable. Even if we're in the center of God's will, we ought to be looking for things in our lives that we can change so we can be more like our Savior. There's this decision of discretion to not take the stroll of inquisition, to not uh, be in the stand of influence, and to not be in the seat of, uh, uh, of indoctrination. No. See, what we want to do 
You allow yourselves to be impressed by the intellect, like the Corinthians. You allow yourselves the privilege of changing your doctrine, like the Galatians. Just stay away from their counsel. Don't start walking there. If you never start strolling in inquisition, you'll never take a seat. The first decision is the decision of discretion. Then we'll cover this quickly and be done. The second decision is the decision of devotion. Now, the Hebrew poetry here, it does not always use the word but or whereas or anything like that. But, you know, Hebrew poetry is one uh, one phrase and then either an opposite or another phrase that repeats what the first phrase said. So notice what it says. Blessed is the man that doesn't do this that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, that doesn't stand in the way of sinners, that doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, those decisions of discretion. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. and his law doth he meditate day and night. See, the decision of devotion right here, young people, we need to realize that this book's the answer. Professors make mistakes. Preachers say things that they shouldn't say. Even godly parents have made errors. This book hasn't. Notice what it says, though. It says that it should be our satisfaction. His delight is in the law of the Lord. You'll hear this oftentimes as you sit here in these, in these services in chapel. You'll hear preachers warn you just like they warned me. When I was a Bible college student, both times I was a Bible college student. They'll say, don't let the Bible become your textbook. And you may, in fact, be on guard about that. But after you leave here, Do you know what a lot of preachers do? They make the Bible their toolbox. They study their Bible only when they're preparing a message. It's not something they delight in anymore. It's almost drudgery. You know, when you're reading the whole New Testament for a semester, and you're reading the whole Old Testament for a semester, honestly, if you're honest and if I'm honest, you don't get as much out of that required reading as you do when you're just studying it and meditating on it. But if you're a pastor someday or an evangelist someday and the only time you open your Bible is when you're preparing a message, all you're using it is as a means to an end. We're supposed to delight in it. You know what it ought to be, Christian? Listen carefully. It ought to be that every time we open our Bibles, we open it up with the excitement of a five-year-old going to the zoo for the first time and seeing his first elephant. We ought to open up our Bibles. We ought to be saying, whoa, I can't wait to get in there. I can't wait to wake up in the morning to open my Bible. Yeah, I'll have to make some time to read that required reading. But I'm going to get in this thing. I'm going to bury myself in it. All of my life's going to be about it. It's not just something I use as a textbook. It's not just something I use as a tool. It is something that I delight in. I love it. You have to make that decision now. You won't make it 20 years from now. 20 years from now, your theology will come from Facebook and Twitter. It's my fulfillment. I don't need their influence. My delight isn't there. I don't need their indoctrination. My satisfaction isn't there. I need this right here. I need to delight in this book right here. First, there's the decision of discretion. We talk about the satisfaction. Number two, the source. His delight is in the... Law of the Lord. You know, it is impossible to delight in something that you're constantly questioning. His delight is in the law 
of the Lord. This source, this inspired, inerrant, providentially preserved Word of God. By the way, we made a mistake in Bible-believing fundamentalism about 40 years ago. We decided to fight and fight and fight, and there's nothing wrong with this fight, on inspiration. Listen, Benny Hinn believes in inspiration. He doesn't believe in preservation. We decided to fight over inspiration. By the way, if you take their thoughts about inspiration, and I'm going to tell you exactly what they say, the Bible was inspired in the original manuscripts. This does not apply to copies or translations. Isn't that interesting? Because if the Bible applies, inspiration only applies to the original manuscripts, if there is no providential preservation by Almighty God, then all you have is the very best sinful man can do on their own to preserve the inspired Word of God. Do you know what also you have? You have a book that doesn't exist. That means there hasn't been an inspired Bible on planet Earth in over 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, it means more than that. It means no person in all of human history ever had in their hands more than five or six inspired books of the Word of God. And yet all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. You know, the Galatians didn't profit one little bit from an inspired book to the Philippians. The church at Ephesus didn't prosper one little bit by an inspired book, books written to the Corinthians. They never saw them. If it only applies to the original manuscripts, then you and I have nothing except the very best, and I'm not even criticizing the men involved, the very best that human scholars can do with the inspired Word of God. No, no. It's providentially preserved by, the, by Almighty God Himself. He's involved in the preservation. It's on Him to preserve it, not on me to preserve it. It's on me to preach it. It's on me to love it. It's on me to meditate it. It's on Him to preserve it. That's why the Bible tells us, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver purified in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Or Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle, till in no wise pass at all, till all be fulfilled. Or Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withered and the flower faded, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Listen, I've got something to delight in. I've got something that should satisfy me, and it's the law of the Lord. Brother Harper, you saying I shouldn't read or listen to anybody else? Nope. What I am saying is, let God be true, and every man a liar. You hear someone preach something, and you go, wait a minute. In my 25 years, I've always heard that the other way. Now, there have been things that I believed for 25 years that I found out I was wrong. It's certainly possible. But what I didn't find out was that this person was right and the Bible was wrong. I found out that this person was right because they agreed with the Bible and I was wrong because I didn't. Notice the decision. 
Not just the decision of discretion, but the decision of devotion. It talks about my satisfaction, delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. It talks about my source. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And it talks about my study. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 119, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, which often is misunderstood. Study to show thyself approved unto God. That, by the way, is not talking about studying your Bible. It's talking about doing your diligence. It's the, from the Greek word spudao, if I'm not mistaken. It's talking about doing your very best. Study to show thyself approved unto God. We need to do our best to be approved unto God. But then it says this, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, To please Almighty God, you better rightly divide this book right here. To be approved by God, you better make sure that you're studying this book. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. Psalm 119 and verse 15. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119 and verse 11. The truth of the matter is, Christian, we need to never stop studying this book. We should love it, delight in it. It should be our satisfaction, this source, the law of the Lord. It should be what we study, meditating therein day and night. And we should be saturated. But his delight, satisfaction, is the law of the Lord, source. And in his law doth he meditate. That's our study, day and night. That's our saturation. We should be in this all the time. Say, Brother Harper, I can't just sit around all day long and do nothing but read my Bible. No, no, no. But if you've hid it in your heart, it's always on your mind. People will say, anytime you're a preacher and you memorize Scripture and things like that, they'll, they'll ask you questions about memorizing Scripture. And I always tell them the same thing. Memorizing Scripture, to quote it, can impress people. Hiding it in your heart pleases God. It needs to be a part of us every single day day not just every single day but every single night every single moment of every single day our thoughts our intentions our decisions ought to be because we delight in this book right here make that decision you know what you'll find it'll keep you off facebook i know facebook's the old one i get it i'm an old guy all right it'll keep you off twitter it'll keep you off tiktok it'll keep you off instagram it'll keep you off all of them You'll have a lot less time to be posting pictures of every meal that you eat if you spend more time studying day and night, absorbing the Word of God. Now, what happens if we make that decision? Here's what the Bible tells us now. If we've delighted in the law of the Lord, I'm going to, be, I'm going to, have, uh, I'm going to have the satisfaction of delighting in it, the source, the word of the, uh, the, word, uh, the law of the Lord. I'm going to have the study. I'm going to meditate therein. I'm going to have the saturation. I'm going to be doing it day and night, and then I'm going to have the success. <laughs> and he shall be like a tree. The Bible talks a lot about success. Think about this for just a second. The world defines success as financial stability. A student describes success as getting a good grade. An evangelist could describe success. They shouldn't, but they could, about having a full schedule. A pastor can define success by having a growing church, the needs met, and people even being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All of those things, there's actually nothing wrong with those definitions, but it's not the Bible definition. The Bible talks a lot about success. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Thou mayest observe the door according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. 
Psalm 119, verse 130, the answer word giveth light, he giveth understanding to the simple. The Bible tells us that we can have success, but it always tells us that it's through the word of God. So we can have this success. What does this, how does this success then get defined in these verses? And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. As I understand it, the Hebrew picture here is of a tree that is between two, a, a, a river that is flowing that breaks off into two tributaries and they're in the middle of the two tributaries where it's, where it's getting water all the time. Even in a drought, the, the two uh, passages of water there will feed that tree and it grows and its roots gets deeper and deeper and deeper so that that tree's not going anywhere. He should be like a tree planted. He's going to be firm. The more time you spend in this book, the less chance you have of taking a stroll or taking a seat or taking a stand in the wrong place. Be firm. You ought to be firm. Say, Brother Harper, if I'm firm, people aren't going to like me. You know, that's okay. I'm sorry, it is okay. When did our goal ever become to have a popularity contest? By the way, it's that way even among independent Baptists. It's the same among evangelicals. It's the same among everybody. Everybody wants followers. Social media has, has taken that to a whole nother level about how many people follow you, how many people are your Facebook friends and things of that nature. <laughs> but that's not where success is. Success is to be firm. Success is to stand Psalm 119, 165, great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Oh, but Brother Harper, you don't know, he's been my friend for years and years and years and now we don't speak. I'm here to tell you something. I have people that I have known for years. Matter of fact, Brother Tozier and I were just talking about a pastor that I have known forever and we had both had the same exact, almost word for word, did we not, sweetheart? We had the same exact conversation with this pastor one year apart I have to tell you this. I mean, I still pray for him, but we don't communicate anymore. Because I'd rather be I'd rather be right with God than keep a friend. I'm sorry. See, Brother Harper, that's awful hard, I know. I'm trying to find the verse in the Word of God that tells me that the Christian life and the Christian walk is going to be easy. I haven't found one of you, Brother Ogle. It just doesn't exist. If you expected this to be easy, then Christian, you signed up for the wrong school. But at the end of this, you can be oh so happy while they're sitting around criticizing everything that you do. Our happiness doesn't come from our friends. Our happiness comes from our friend that sticketh closer than any brother. If you've had to walk away from family members, if you've had to walk away from people that you've known for 30 years, you say, boy, this isn't easy. It'd be a lot easier just to change just this little bit right here. It's not much. He's not asking me to change everything that I believe. Just this one little thing. I can change one little thing for a friend. No, I'm supposed to be firm. I'm supposed to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Notice not only am I supposed to be firm, but I'm supposed to be fruitful. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that these churches, and I'll use the term, they don't use the term, but I'll use it. These churches called the river. 
You know what I'm talking about. In your town, you probably have one. It's, oh, it's on the other side of town. It's this giant building. A lot of times they buy old movie, uh, movie theaters and they have their church there. They don't call it a church because apparently they think that lost people are completely ignorant. They think that you're going to be walking by and seeing this giant structure and say, oh, wow, there's a river. And you walk inside and you see all the theaters seating there and that thing that looks like a platform and you're going to go, Wait a minute. This isn't a river. This is a church. They tricked me into coming. Doesn't work that way, by the way. The truth is, though, never notice that those churches, they're not growing because of their bus ministry. If you have a church that has a bus ministry, they're not growing by door-to-door soul winning. They're not growing by evangelization, and they're not growing by discipleship. Do you know why they're growing? They're growing because independent Baptists got tired of hearing preachers preach the Word of God, and they had teachers. They desired teachers having itching ears, and they left and go to this church right here because they don't have to go three times a week. They don't have to be told not, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. By the way, I, I love that answer. Let me just throw that in. As I told you the other day, this is a rabbit trail. I'm going to go down this for just one second if you'll let me do it. They'll tell you this. Well, the New Testament church, well, they didn't have church on just Sunday morning and Wednesday. They had church every day. Right. So please explain to me why you don't have church on Friday and Thursday and Tuesday and Monday. But no, what you'll do is use that as an excuse to cancel forever your Wednesday night service. If you want to use the New Testament church as an example, we should be going to church more, not less. How many pastors have completely canceled their Wednesday night services? Brother Tozier mentioned the other day, because attendance wasn't that good, so they canceled it. Just forget it. People aren't coming. Well, what a great plan that is. Eventually, you'll cancel everything. But notice carefully, please, you're going to be... They, they don't grow their churches by going out into the highways and hedges and compelling them to come in. They grow their churches by picking up the people that have decided to walk away from us. And they wonder why their congregation isn't that strong. Our goal is to tell the whole world about this book. I don't know that you can be a a, a Christian that is right with God without being a fruitful Christian, without at least sharing the gospel without at least telling somebody about it. I don't know how you can do that. The, gospel is com- uh, the Gospels are completely filled with it. And the truth of the matter is, we're going to be fruitful. It's going to bring forth His fruit in His season. It's not just talking about bringing lost people in. Of course, since this is a Hebrew poem, it's actually talking about reproducing yourself. Reproducing people that don't walk after the counsel of the ungodly. That don't stand in the way of sinners. And that don't sit in the seat of the scornful. We're supposed to reproduce ourselves, But it's happened, has it not? In my lifetime, each generation seems to move further away from the Lord. And now, now we're at the place where we've decided that the next generation is in charge of this generation. That's not how it works. You need to sit here while you're here and absorb Don't just study to pass a test. Watch these men. Listen to them tell you about their ministries because one of the things that you see about Ambassador is you don't have a rookie teaching you anywhere. You don't have a guy that graduated last May (laughs) that's teaching you pastoral theology today. You have men that have done it. 
fought the fight. They wear the scars. They have the emotional scars on their body from people stabbing them in the back in deacons meetings, people rejecting them, people voting them out. They have the wonderful stories of the people they've led to the Lord over the years in the church that they started from nothing, that they, uh, the Lord allowed them to grow to a couple hundred people. And they, when they tell you about that, you should sit there and you should absorb it. You should learn from their successes and learn from their failures. Absorb it, get it all. While you're here. But it starts with you making the decisions. The decision of discretion. I'm not going to walk there. I'm not going to stand there. And I'm never going to sit there. Because I'm going to delight in this book right here. I'm going to open it up with the joy and wonder. And it's going to be my source for everything. And I'm going to meditate day and night in it. And then the Lord's going to let me be fruitful for him and firm for him like a tree. We have too many, too many uh, rose bushes out there. I love how it's uh, uh, talking about being a tree and it doesn't ever say anything about being a snowflake. (laughs) Young people, I know this is not the easiest message to listen to. And some of you are sitting there saying, I don't know who he's talking to. It's you. If you don't decide now, if you don't make the decision of discretion and the decision of devotion, you'll be exactly where I've just said that people that sat in the same pews, listened to the same messages by the same faculty are today. It's all up to you, though. No faculty member, no president can make you make decisions. Only you can do that. This is a defining moment. At least I hope it is in your life. What are you going to do? Do you want to leave here and be miserable and critical? Do you want to leave here and be, oh, so happy? It's your choice.